What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for checking out the SCFYA podcast. SCFYA is the College and Young Adult Ministry of South Tampa Fellowship Church in Tampa, Florida. We meet every Monday night for the city, our weekly worship gathering. We are a family that's committed to following Jesus together in our city, and we would love for you to join us. For more information about how you can get involved, check us out on Instagram at STF underscore YA. Thanks for listening. Uh, so we're, we're super grateful you came here on this Monday night to, to be with us. And uh, we've been in this series over the past few weeks um, called XOXO, and it's just a series on love and relationships. And really, we've, we've kind of made the point every week that um, in a series on love and relationships, really, we're going to talk more about ourselves than other people. Because the reality is, um, personal problems become relational problems if you don't deal with them personally. And so we've talked about love and what it actually is. We've talked about how to think about relationships in a healthy way, how to set boundaries, how to uh, be secure in our singleness and to use singleness as a, as a season for God's glory and not something that can be wasted. Um, and uh, tonight we're going to continue to kind of lean deeper into relationships and really ourselves so that we can be the best and healthiest versions of ourselves for whatever relationship life may throw at us. And as we get going tonight, I want to read you a passage in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is the end of that chapter. And I'm just going to tell you on the, on the front end. <clears throat> I'm going to read these verses. They're going to be on the screen. But um, I think the next 30 to 45 seconds, these verses are not going to mean much to you. They're probably going to be words in your Bible if you have one with you. They're going to be words up on a TV up here, but they're just going to be words. That's okay. Um, my goal, though, is that over the next 30 to 40 minutes, though, these words would move from words to hope. And that more than just reading something in a book or on a screen, you would actually see the hope and the life that are found in these words. But in order for us to get there, we're going to have to walk through some stuff in the Bible, but also in our own lives, to see why these words are as meaningful as I believe that they are. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, he says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Uh, Take up my yoke. That's a agriculture term for like an ox. When they walk and they plow a field, the thing they wear on their neck is a yoke. It pulls a heavy object. Jesus says, take up my yoke, his yoke, and learn from me. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. So a couple years ago, um, I was traveling, and um, I don't know if you're like me, but when you tr- when I travel, like the day or two before my travel, I make impulsive purchases. Does anybody else like this? Like I go to Target and I'm like, oh, I need that and I need that and I need that, and I have like 15 bottles of like travel shampoo sitting in my cupboard at home. Cupboard? What am I? 85? My <laughs> my my whatever? My vanity? I don't know if that's what you call it, right? I just make these impulsive purchases, and this one time was no different. I was there at Target and I'm walking and I passed the like luggage section and. So I thought, you know what, I've had my same, you know, little Roy suitcase for a minute. I'm going to go walk in and, and see what they got there. And, you know, I, I'm walking on this aisle, and I see this um, bag that draws my attention, and it's called a uh, Traveler's Weekender Backpack. 
And here's what it is. It is a um, uh, like duffel bag that doubles as a backpack. It's got like, you know, the backpack straps that you can put on, but like then you can flip it on its side and then you pack it like a suitcase. And so it's got different compartments for your, uh, you know, your socks and your underwear and your shirts and all the, that good jazz. And um, the, 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 like the, uh, the like subtitle, if you will, of the, um, of the, the packaging, it says, feels like you're carrying a cloud. That sounds nice. I'm going to be flying among the clouds. I might as well carry a cloud on my back. And so uh, what do I do? $75 right there. Swipe it on the visa. Um, I get home. Rachel says, what is that? Uh, I said, well, babe, that's my new bag. And she's like, well, you have this bag. And I was like, yeah, but this one's like I'm carrying a cloud. And so I packed my bag. And here's the thing about this trip I was going on. It was actually a camping trip. And so where I was going to be going, I was going to be flying to upstate New York, and I was going to be camping where I went there. So I wasn't just packing like the everyday essentials, right? Like the typical just couple, you know, shirts and pants and underwear, socks and, you know, toiletries. I was also packing like a suitcase, uh, nope, not that. A sleeping bag. I'm packing a suitcase. Anyways, um, I was packing a sleeping bag in my suitcase. I was packing a Nalgene. Anybody know what that is, right? Any of you like granola people in here? Um, was, was packing like a Nalgene so I could, <laughs> yeah, Ben's like, I got it. Um, he's from Colorado. Obviously, he's got one. And so um, I, uh, I packed a pair of boots. You're like, you don't own boots. You're right. I don't, but I did. Um, and uh, so I'm kind of adding this up and I'm like, gosh, like, this is going to be heavy, but no, like, it's like you're carrying a cloud. Um, and you know, like when you make a decision and you're determined that it's going to be the right decision, even if you know from the get-go it's the wrong decision, it's like when you're driving and you know you missed the exit, but you're like, no, 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 it's good. Like we can go, like we can go up here, like we'll, we'll be fine. That's kind of where I was in this moment. And so um, I put this thing on and I'm like, oh, Ah, that's all right. I feel like I'm carrying a cloud right now. And so uh, the next day, 5 a.m., wake up, go to the airport, and I've got two connecting flights. And over the next 10 hours, I carried this cloud all around the Tampa airport and the Charlotte airport and the Syracuse airport until I made it to my destination. And then when I got to my destination, I had to put it into a car, drive two hours, and I had to hike with this out to where we were going to be. And I remember getting there that night, and I took this cloud off of my back. And I put it down, and I looked at it, and I went, why did I decide to carry that? Because I had a suitcase that has these things called wheels on it. You ever heard of that? And it does all the work for me. And I sat there, and I went, why did I decide to carry that? Two reasons. First, I obviously didn't attend Dave Ramsey plug for Dave Ramsey. You won't spend impulsive purchases at Target. But the other reason was because I didn't want to address the baggage I had. Because to address it would be for me to admit that I'd made maybe the wrong decision or that something had been coerced in me that caused me to carry this thing. And so instead, I just carried it. You know, when it comes to relationships, um, I believe that Every single problem we have stems from the baggage we bring into our relationships. And I think that for every single person in this room, um, if we took an honest look at us and how we behaved in our relationships and the patterns and the decisions that we made that affected our relationships, we would look at those things that we are carrying and we would also say, why am I carrying that? And again, I think we carry it because in order to put it down, you have to address it. 
And in order to address it, you have to admit that maybe you have done wrong or there has been wrong that has been done to you. So tonight, what I want to do is I want us to address what I believe is the baggage every single one of us bring into a relationship. Doesn't matter how you grew up, doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not, or you were a part of the church and then something happened and you left, or you just, maybe this is the first time you've been a part of a ministry or a church. Like, it doesn't matter your upbringing, doesn't matter uh, how rich you, your parents are or, or how poor you were growing up. It doesn't matter how smart you are, if you got a full ride to school or if you, you didn't. Like, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us, I firmly believe, we carry the same baggage. Now, that baggage manifests differently. But I believe we all carry the same baggage. Um, and so what I want to do tonight is I want us to do just a little bit of honest introspection. And I know that that is um, not maybe the most appealing thing to do on a Monday night. But I really do believe that we carry things unnecessarily because we don't address them. And I've learned this firsthand, especially over the past nine or ten months, as I have seen things in my own life that I've carried unnecessarily. And as I've carried these things, I've seen the hurt that they've caused me and the hurt that they've caused people around me. So here's what I just want to ask from you over the next few minutes. Um, would you just allow yourself to give yourself an honest look? Rather than maybe having an argument in your mind for everything I might say or a reason why this doesn't apply to you, just maybe open yourself up to say, hey, maybe I am walking with stuff I don't need to. Because the reality is we do believe in a Jesus who wants to change and transform you, but he can't change and transform the fake you, just the real you. So I believe that there are three different types of baggage that we walk into every relationship with. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this from the original story in Scripture where baggage enters the world. It's a story in the Garden of Eden when God makes everything and he makes it good and he makes it perfect, but sin enters the world, brokenness then through it, and subsequently baggage for the people who live in this space. So I want to look at that passage a little bit tonight, and hopefully in doing this we'll see ourselves in the midst of it. So, what is the baggage that we all walk with? Again, I think that there's three different types of baggage we walk with, and all of them have a different levels and nuance to them. <clears throat> the first thing that I think that we all walk with is we all walk into every single relationship with the baggage of rejection. Rejection. What is rejection? You mean like, Chris, I asked that girl to middle school dance in seventh grade and she said no? Maybe. But deeper than that. You see, rejection is any time dignity has been kept from you. That's rejection. Anytime dignity has been kept from you, you have experienced rejection in your life. Now you might say, well, what is dignity? Dignity is another way to talk about your Worth. And here's the thing. Um, every single person in this room, every single person that exists, again, no matter their gender, no matter their race or ethnicity, um, no matter their intellectual capacity, every single human being that exists, exists with a particular and unique dignity, a worth. 
And that's found in the creation of everyone when Genesis 1 verse 27 says that when God made everything, he made everything and everyone, the people he made in his image. People he made in his image. He he did not make animals in his image. He did not make plants in his image or trees or mountains or grass or anything in between. He made people in his image. And what that means is that there is something unique about every person who will ever exist. You bear the image of God. Now, that's a kind of a churchy like language. What does that actually mean? It means that you reflect something about God that nothing else in creation reflects. And in that, you have an inherent worth and dignity that nothing else in creation has. You have the capacity to be fully known and to be fully loved because you're made in God's image. Now, here's the thing about rejection, though. Um, Rejection always comes when that dignity is kept from you. So you say, okay, well, how would I know if dignity is kept from me? How would I know if I have uh, been in a relationship or in a situation where I have not been shown worth and not been shown dignity? Well, again, go back to it. The image of God is on you. So anytime you are treated as if you are not an image bearer of God, that dignity is taken from you. What does that look like? Well, because you are an image bearer of God, because you have dignity given to you, Every relationship you are in should be characterized by two things. It should be characterized by honor and by honesty. Honor and honesty. By honor, every relationship you are in should say to you, you do not have to perform. And by honesty, every relationship you are in should say, you do not have to hide. And the reason why I know that this is what God wants for us is because when Adam and Eve, the two first people God created in his image, when they sin, when they decide to go their way and not God's way, they experience the opposite of these two things. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7. It says, at that moment after they sinned, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves. They performed together to cover themselves. And look at the next verse in verse 8. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord of God walking in the garden. And what did they do? They hid from the Lord among the trees. They performed and they hid. Why? Because sin had robbed them of their dignity. And for the first time in their existence, they were experiencing rejection. Now, here's the thing about rejection. Um, We can experience rejection in a lot of different ways that might not necessarily look like being rejected. It, It might not be as simple as someone saying to us, you have to do this in order for me to have a relationship with you. But that's why it's so dangerous and that's why it's so hurtful because it's subversive. Have you had a relationship where you didn't feel like you were actually going to be loved if you didn't perform? 
Have you had a relationship where you anticipated rejection if you were actually honest? Maybe that was with your parents growing up. Maybe that was with that first girl that you dated. Maybe that was with the friend group you had in high school. Maybe that's with the people you're friends with today in this room. I have to perform and I have to hide to be fully known and fully loved. And so what we experience is rejection because what people accept when we perform and we hide is not actually us. It's the projection of ourselves that we want them to accept. So then we wonder, am I actually worth it? Do I actually have worth? Do I actually have dignity? And so we experience rejection. And every time you experience rejection, ultimately you wound up hurt. So in being rejected in a relationship and being put into a position where you have to perform for somebody, or you have to hide who you really are and what you really struggle with and what you're actually walking through or what you really believe about God or about them or whatever it might be. In doing that, what happens is hurt begins to build up in your life. And it can be like a paper cut, just one at a time. And as you experience rejection, you begin to see that actually... There's another bit of baggage that moves into your life. And that's the baggage of trauma. See, when it comes to trauma, I think that for most of us, we assume that trauma can only happen during a catastrophic event, which it can. In a, in a, in a, in a moment of, of, of extreme violence, right, like something that happens in a, in a war or uh, in a fight or flight incident, like, uh, and, and so we reduce traumatic experiences to experiences that gauge high on our trauma meter. So we probably assume that there's a lot of people in this world that experience trauma, but I'm not one of them. Trauma is the Greek word for wound. So trauma is just a wound. And it can be a big wound or it can be a small wound. And see, here's what happens to uh, many of us. Um, anytime dignity is withheld from us, so we have to perform because we feel rejected, uh, what we find is that we feel wounded, right? We weren't actually accepted. We weren't actually loved. We weren't actually wanted. And so what we do is we take our rejection and we bottle it up and we package it real nicely in these wounds that we receive because of our rejection. So we package it up real nice and then it's easier to carry. Because, you know, it's just something small that's happened to us. It's, it's not big. It's, it's it, it, you know, it was something that was said to us when we were a kid or, you know, just the way that our dad treated us. But he was just, you know, hard on, on you know, the guys in the family. And or it was just, you know, something that that boyfriend did. But we were 14. Like, 
you know, that's going to happen. And so we just take the rejection we've experienced in life and we learn how to compartmentalize it. And we compartmentalize it in the form of our wounds. And we can minimize our wounds and we can argue away our wounds and we can say that our wounds are not that big of a deal. But the thing about trauma is that it can come in all shapes and sizes. But its shapes and sizes do not determine its effect on us. Now, there's three different types of trauma. There's physical trauma, there's emotional trauma, and there's sexual trauma. Physical trauma is probably the most clearly identifiable type of trauma that we can experience. It's something that physically happens to us, an accident we get in, uh, a fight that we're a part of, something that we can physically see the wounds on our body of the trauma that we were a part of. Trauma is the hurt that has been done to us. And that hurt, it can come in many different ways. Physical hurt is very easily seen, but sexual trauma and emotional trauma, those are a lot more difficult to identify. And they're more difficult to identify because they're more easy to dismiss. It's hard to dismiss a cut on your arm or a fracture to your skull from a traumatic accident. It's hard to dismiss that. It's a lot easier to dismiss a boyfriend who talked you into having sex with him when you were 16 and weren't comfortable with it. It's a lot easier to talk your way out of a mom who never actually said, I love you, but only ever made you feel like you had to perform for her. So here's the thing. Emotional and sexual trauma, if we do not know how to identify them, become these baggage is these burdens that we just walk around with as if it's normal to walk around with that. And again, I'm not, the point of tonight is not to get me to get you to like analyze every aspect and granular level of your life to see where was the trauma. I think there's some very easy identifiable ways to see whether you're walking with this today, whether this trauma maybe is sticking with you in your relationships right now. Uh, I want you to think about this. There's a few kind of identifiers of how to determine whether something might be traumatic emotionally or sexually. You know, first, um, uh, trauma experts say that trauma is not found in the event. It's found in the imprint of the event on your life. This is what one clinical psychologist uh, said. I can't pronounce his name, so I won't try. But he said, we have to learn that trauma is not just an event that took place in the past. It's also the imprint left by that experience on my mind, on my body, and on my brain, which is another thing that has to do with trauma. Trauma doesn't just affect your mind. It affects your body. It affects every aspect of you. Um, When I was three years old, uh, my family was having this fish fry. And um, during this fish fry, I was off kind of playing with some older kids that were there, and um, I went to go ask my parents a, a question. I don't even remember what the question was. But when I went to travel back, um, I kind of rounded the corner, and around the corner was the table where, like, the vats of grease were, where they were fi- frying the fish. And as a three-year-old, I had a decision to make. Was I going to run around the table, or was I going to try to crawl through the cords? Well, I was a three-year-old, so I decided to crawl through the cords. 
And in crawling through the cords, I stepped on a cord with a vat of grease on it, and I had an eight-gallon vat of uh, frying oil that poured on top of me. It, got, it went in my, uh, just straight down my head. Uh, it went into my ears, into my eyes, into my mouth, into my nose, went straight down my body all the way to my ankles. Um, it's an experience that is just a testimony of the Lord's goodness uh, because the things the doctors said I would never be able to do, I can do. I have, they said I would never have hair, said I would never be able to walk, said I would not be able to talk clearly without a stutter. Look at God. Um, but there's some things about that traumatic experience for me that will forever shape me first. Um, for the longest time in my life, I would get sick to my stomach whenever I smelled frying oil and thought about eating fish. imprint on me. Let me take you a level deeper. One of the treatments that I had to do in this process was um, as skin was growing back and scabbing was occurring over my burns, they had to consistently scrub the scabbing away and add um, antiseptic to my wounds so that they wouldn't get infected. Um, and obviously, incredibly painful experience. And um, they had to, like, I was, like, obviously writhing in pain, moving around a lot, and they had two options for my family. They said that they could, like, legitimately strap me down with, like, leather straps to a table, or someone from my family could hold me down. Um, well, my dad volunteered to do that. And, it, like, obviously for me, did not even understand the trauma that, that inflicted upon him as he held down his son while he was, had pain inflicted to him. Uh, only now getting a glimpse of that, now that I have a daughter who's almost that age. But the deeper thing was that for the longest time in my life, I was afraid of my dad. My dad never laid a hand on me. My dad's one of the most, most, most loving and caring people you will ever meet. But I was frightened of him. Every time he walked into a room, I felt like I was going to throw up. I didn't think I could speak to him. Why? Because I had a moment for about two weeks when I was younger where I identified my dad with the trauma and the pain that I was experiencing. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that to show you that if you're trying to process this trauma, I'm asking you, is the imprint of it left with you? Not just the event that happened, but what that event did to you. Has it stayed with you? Because ultimately, if it stayed with you, if it's affecting your whole body, what trauma will eventually do is that it will be an experience that tells you one at a time that um, you are not worthy to be loved unless you perform and unless you hide. That's specifically true about emotional trauma and sexual trauma. Let me kind of dive a little bit deeper here and just lean in on this um, reality of sexual trauma. Um, first, let me say, I'm by no means an expert on any of this. Um, but sexual trauma is any time we have been coerced, manipulated, or forced to engage in sexual activity. Anytime you have been coerced, manipulated, or forced to sexual activity. You wanna know what that means? It means that 
even sexual activity that you were a willing participant in and that you enjoyed could still be classified as sexual trauma. So could that be someone who aggressively and forcefully did something awful? Yes. Could that also be a boyfriend who told you that if you didn't have sex with him, he wouldn't believe that you loved him? Yeah. Could that be an individual who made you believe that if you didn't do this with them or you didn't do that with them or look at this, then someone was going to find out and you were going to get in trouble? Yeah. Could it be being exposed to pornography outside of your desire to look at pornography? Yeah. You know that 83% of people who have seen pornography say that they were shown pornography for the first time outside of their consent, which means that they were exposed to porn through someone else showing it to them, an older brother or sister or a friend or whatever it might be. Think about this. If pornography is a depiction of sexual activity and your first exposure to that is outside of your desire to be exposed to it, why would you not classify that as something that's traumatic that's happened to you? Oh, and to take it a step further, why would you punish yourself for having a skewed view of sexuality when how you view sexuality was informed by how you first saw it and what you first saw was a perversion of sex? Again, what I want us to see is that when we feel like we have to perform and when we feel like we have to hide, trauma enters our lives. And when trauma enters our lives, we just baggage our rejection up in it. And then we've got to figure out how to live. How am I going to live with this trauma that's in my life? How am I going to live in light of the rejection that I've experienced? Well, we all find ways to cope. We find ways to cope with the rejection we faced from our parents. We find ways to cope from the trauma that was inflicted on us when we were younger. We find ways to cope because we have to create environments for us to cope within. And so what ends up happening is we begin to make decisions. And as we make decisions in life, we are making decisions in an attempt to self-protect because that's what we naturally do. We naturally seek to protect ourselves. Well, you want to protect yourself from the rejection you faced. You want to protect yourself from the trauma that you've experienced. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to make decisions that allow you to create environments that are easy to cope with So you'll take your baggage, your trauma, and your rejection, <clears throat> and you'll stuff it into something else. But see, here's the difference. That trauma, that was done to you. That rejection, that was done to you. But this is done by you. Because you got to find ways to cope. And you got to find ways to manage the pain. And so in an effort to manage the pain and in an effort to cope, you make decisions. And then eventually you realize those decisions aren't actually helping. So then you get filled with this last bit of baggage. Shame. And shame is a decision that's been made by you. And so when an odd 
twist from the enemy, he convinces us that the rejection and the trauma that has been done to us is actually our fault. Because now we've got to be the ones to cope with it. And we realize very quickly that we don't cope very well. Look back at that verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. What does it say about them? Their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. Shame. That overwhelming feeling that all is futile, that overwhelming feeling of disgust with yourself, that overwhelming feeling that you're never going to actually fix the problem, that overwhelming feeling of futility and hopelessness. That's what we walk with. And so what ends up happening is that um, if we grew up in church, we have been in environments where shame is talked about, right? And maybe it's talked about in different languages. Maybe you were at a church camp one day and, and they gave like an altar call and said, hey, everybody come to the front if you've got an addiction to pornography. And you went to the front of that room and you wrote your porn addiction on that paper and you threw it in the fire or you nailed it to the cross or whatever your church did. And you said, I'm never looking at porn again. And you went good for two weeks and now it's been 12 years and you're still addicted to porn. Or you said, no, you know what, like I've, you know, had that habit of hooking up with girls and like I just did it because I wanted love. But you know what, like I'm never doing it again. Like not happening. I'm not going to use girls anymore. I'm not going to take advantage of them. I'm not just going to let them be at my beck and call. Like, no, I'm going to actually like love them. I'm going to actually treat them with respect. And that goes really well until things start to go south at work. And you don't really feel very respected. And you don't really feel like you have much worth because you're the low man on the totem pole at work. So what do you do? Well, tender is a whole lot easier than making your boss happy. Or, you know, I'm not going to be that person who's toxic in relationships anymore. Like, I'm not going to be the gossip, the one who just, like, tells everybody's stuff to everyone just to make me feel better. I'm not just going to, like, talk about people behind their backs. Like, I'm not going to be that anymore. And that goes well for a minute. And then you feel like you're losing some leverage in a relationship. They don't seem to like you as much as you want to be liked. Or they're not spending as much time with you as you wish that they did. So what do you need to do? You need to give them a reason to be with you. Why should they be with you? Because you know everything about everybody else. So we've been in those environments, and we've talked about those things, talked about our sin, talked about our shame. And so we can identify it, and we can claim it and say, this is in the name of Jesus is going to be out of my life. But the problem is, if we don't open up our shame, we won't ever actually fix what's causing us shame. Because what we do is not the deepest part of who we are. If you want to change, you have just... You cannot just know what you're doing. You have to know why you're doing it. And I hope you'll see that the reason why you and I might do the things that we do is because of the rejection and the trauma that we've experienced in this life. But because for many of us, we never dig deep enough to truly see that, we just walk around with shame and like we just change the color of the suitcase. We trade one addiction for another addiction, one unhealthy relationship for another unhealthy relationship, one toxic conversation to another toxic conversation, one pointless job to another pointless job, and just we live our lives spinning the wheels and spinning the wheels, and we look up and we've gone nowhere. 
And then we look around us and we're like, how am I not growing in my relationship with God? Why am I never happy? Everyone else around me seems happy. Everyone else around me seems like they're growing. Well, probably not. They're just being fake. Because for most of us, we can talk about our shame, but we don't dig deep enough to deal with our shame. I mean, that was me. You know, I've shared this a little bit before, um, but, um, you know, I have had seasons in my life where I looked at the environments that I was in and looked at the unhealthiness in me, the sin patterns in me, and I blamed it on my environments because of how those people are treating me, because of how they're leading me or what they are doing or what they're not doing. Like, that's why this is happening in me. And this was most clearly shown to me about 10 months ago when I made a big transition in my life. Um, I was on staff at a church for close to eight years. It was the first church that I ever went on staff to be a pastor at. I was 21 years old and I was hired to be a youth pastor. No idea why they did that. But it was this church that gave me a chance. It was this church that I grew up in. It was this church that believed in me. But over time, like, I started to get, like, frustrated, as you do when you're in a job for a while. Like, oh, I could do that differently if I was in that job. And, oh, I would do this differently if I could make those decisions. And, and I began to notice some sin in my life that began to creep up. I was always angry. I would snap at like my wife and and my kid, like my and at Rosie, my daughter, and I would I would get really really angry with them really really easily. And I and like I'm not like that type of a person. I don't normally typically yell, but I would like snap and I would yell and I would say hurtful things. And I was like, you know what? Because I'm in this toxic environment. Like I'm just angry and I'm bottling up all this anger. I'm just letting it out on you guys when I come home. Like that's the problem. Or I began to see that I was like so cynical. Like I couldn't come to church and worship Jesus because I was cynical. I was like, oh, I would do that different. I would do this different. I I want, I want to change this. And so when the Lord kind of moved us away from that church into SDF, I thought everything is going to be fixed. I'm going to be fine now. All that stuff that I had shame about, my anger and my cynicism and my bitterness, like that's going to go away. And like it's going to be golden for me. And then a month went by and two months went by and three months went by and I was still getting angry. I was still cynical. I was still bitter. And I didn't know why. And so I went to a counselor and I said, hey, I've got really bad experiences from this former job that I have and I need you to help me work through them. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, okay. I went, that's not very professional, bud. You don't laugh at someone that tells you they've, 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 like, you don't do that. But what happened was we began to dig. And we talked about the shame. And we talked about the anger. And we talked about the bitterness. And we talked about the cynicism. And then we got to some experiences that I had before. And I realized, oh, that's not why I was upset. So then we got a little deeper, and we got a little deeper, and we got a little deeper, and we were able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to begin to see that, oh, 
A change in my environment wasn't going to take my shame away. Because my environment wasn't causing my shame. My life was causing my shame. And what began was months of and months that will continue of recovery for me. Where I'm beginning to see that my anger is not because I was working somewhere that made me angry. My anger is because I am a kid who grew up never feeling like he was good enough. I was the smallest kid growing up. I wasn't the most athletic kid. I, I, I wasn't, like, picked for, like, the best all-star teams. Or, or, or I wasn't, like, like, friends with the coolest people in my eyes. And so what was happening was the little 8-year-old kid was still living as a 28-year-old. He was getting angry when he was being disrespected. Or so he thought. I was bitter because I'm a control freak. And I find my identity and the affirmation and the pats on the back that I get as a leader in a church. So when things were happening outside of my control, it made me look bad in my eyes. And going, that can't happen because I've got to control everything. And I was bitter because my life wasn't what I thought it was supposed to be. But it wasn't what I was wanted it and thought it was supposed to be because I created a picture of what life was supposed to be outside of what God had said my life would be. I was, I, uh, my buddy preached yesterday at STF, you were there, you heard him say this, I was holding God to promises he never made to me. That's why I was bitter. That's why I was angry. That's why I was cynical. It had nothing to do with where I was before. So have you done that? Or do you just walk into every relationship assuming that if you fix these three things in your life, everything will go well? You can do that. You have the freedom to exchange one piece of shame for another piece of shame. But you will never actually find freedom if you do that. So, that feels pretty hopeless. How am I going to actually love somebody when I'm lugging this around? How am I going to actually live life with open hands when I can't because I'm too caught up holding my shame and my trauma and my rejection? Well, to that, Jesus says, come to me. Anybody who is weary and has heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. That yoke you've been carrying of your baggage, no, 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 give that to me. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and its burden is light. Why should you do that? Because I am gentle and humble heart. Rejection, trauma, shame. All of those are a reality on one side of the cross. 
But Jesus was rejected on your behalf so that in place of your rejection, he can give you worth. And Jesus had the greatest amount of trauma inflicted upon him so that in him being traumatized for you, he could bring you healing. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him, he endured a cross, was despised and shamed. So that on the other side of that shame, you could find forgiveness. That's how you find rest. That's the yoke that's easy, and that's the gospel. It's not just a message you hear that you accept when you're eight so you can go to heaven when you die. It's so that you could actually experience the reality of heaven right here on earth. And unfortunately, guys, we have a lot of Christians who are educated theologically beyond their experience so we know all these things. We know Jesus died for our sins, but we don't know what that means for us right here and right now because we keep walking with this shame and this baggage we don't know what to do with. Stop carrying it. Why are you carrying it? He can give you worth. Even if your parents didn't say you were worthy. He can heal you. No matter what terrible thing was done to you. He will forgive you. No matter what you have done that you are most ashamed of. But the first word in Jesus' remarks are, come. So will you come to him? We end every night here with what we call two minutes of silence. And the point of these two minutes of silence is to process and to think about what God has said in these moments without any distractions. Um, and the reality is the processing that we need to do to truly find forgiveness and healing and to see our worth in Jesus, it does take time, but it always begins with an initial step. So that's what I want to invite you to do in these next two minutes. Um, these next two minutes might not solve everything. They might not help you get to the center of every bit of baggage you bring into relationships, but maybe it could be two minutes that for the first time you say, all right, I'm here, God. Whatever that means. However much that might hurt because of what has to be addressed. <clears throat> but like my dad used to tell me growing up, Chris, nothing changes if nothing changes. Jesus hasn't just come to change us. He's come to transform us. So, come to me, 
all you who are weary and have heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Jesus, we need rest. We need to learn how to stop performing. We need to learn how to stop hiding. We need to learn how to stop minimizing. We need to learn how to stop guilt tripping. We need to learn how to rest. But we can only learn how to rest if we come to you. Help us to do that in these moments in a way that only we can because we're the only ones who know what's happening inside of us. But Jesus, I just ask in these moments that you would begin to remind people of their forgiveness that's found in you. That you would show us that you will provide healing. It might not be immediate. It might be. But Jesus, you can heal us. And you can give us the worth that we so desperately long for in the people that we look to be loved by. Help us to process in these moments, we pray. In your name, amen.